An ascent to the summit of the tallest mountain of the world is not a task for the faint of heart. The obstacles on the way are many and deadly. On that sobering list of obstacles are, are avalanches, are, are falling rocks, or falling into a crevasse, or, or getting fallen on by another climber. Severe exhaustion, dehydration, whiteout, acute mountain sickness or altitude sickness, pneumonia, infections. And then there's the trauma of witnessing accidents and deaths of other climbers. Can you imagine? It's dangerous making your way to the top. It's not easy. I heard recently that about 5%, 5% of those who will attempt a climb on Mount Everest will pay the ultimate price. You know, they say climbing is a metaphor for life. Life is not easy, is it? And to make it anywhere in life, well, that can be downright challenging. It's hard work. It takes lots of determination. But if you try really hard, you might make it to where you want to go. Maybe you'll even make it to the very top. That's what Dr. Seuss told us, right? He said, you're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So get on your way. So much of life is about getting there. It's about making it. And those who want to go farther and soar higher or overcome obstacles, they make sure that they have the right training. They make sure that they have all the resources, all the equipment that they need. And then they study the lives of successful people so that they might one day make it to the top just like those who have gone before them. But you know, it's one thing to consider how you're going to make it to the top. It's another thing to think about how you're going to survive once you get there. Just like the world's tallest summits, finding yourself on top in life, well, that can be a dangerous place as well. Joseph was a man who made it to the top. As we noticed last week, almost instantaneously, he goes from the depths of the pit to the pinnacle of the palace. Last week, we read in Genesis 41, 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now we've all heard those tragic stories of those who rise to power or to fortune or fame too quickly. We, we, we know of people who've won the lottery. They dreamed of it the whole lives, and it finally came true. I won the lottery. How many millions do I have to play with now? And then their lives end tragically, or it doesn't go well. We've, heard, we've seen the child stars, right? Too much fame, too fast, before they're able and mature enough to, to handle it, to process it, to deal with it, and they crash and burn. People who let success go to their heads, they fall off the deep end. You don't have to look hard for examples, do you? 
you might say, well, <laughs> Jared, uh, I'm in no danger of that. <laughs> I, why should I care about surviving the top? All I care about is just getting by in this world. I mean, my life is average. It's unremarkable. It's mediocre. It's, it's middle class. Maybe I, I, it's not even middle class. I'm at the poverty level here. But you know, I think it's important for us to remember that even though so many of us do fall into that category of, of lower or middle class, in an affluent society such as our own, it's very possible that even the most average of us are still living lives of greater ease than even Pharaoh did in ancient Egypt. And we're so used to it, aren't we? We're so used to enjoying life's conveniences that, these days that it's so easy to look, lose sight of who God is and to look, for, look to Him for our day-to-day survival and sustenance. It's possible to be so accustomed to living on top that we don't even realize the effect that it has on us or the way that it's unsuspectingly caused us to take our eyes off of God. Before we know it, we can find ourselves crashing and burning because we've become so self-reliant, so self Focus, so entitled, so confident in ourselves, so enamored with our worldly lifestyle, so consumed with getting more and making things better, or, or even reaching that next level, or perhaps even holding on so tightly to what we already have that we completely lose sight of what God saved us to be in the first place. The top, the place of comfort, and ease, success, and prosperity. It's a dangerous place. How do God's people survive life at the top? In the second half of Genesis 41, we see clues as to what Joseph's secret for survival was once he reached the summit. Would you look at verse 42? It says this, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. They called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Joseph made it to the top. He had risen to the highest height that anyone who was not of the royal bloodline was, could even consider aspiring to. He was second in command of the most powerful nation on the face of the planet. The signet ring that was placed on his finger, those hieroglyphics that were in, surrounded by that oval, he, with that, he could move mountains. There was no man-made force that was not at his disposal. And on his body hung the finest linens money could buy. His clothes, they were more than just a fashion statement. His clothes told everyone of his status. And he once thought that multicolored coat was fancy. <laughs> what was he thinking? That gold chain around his neck, it declared to everyone that even Pharaoh himself, the divine Pharaoh himself, owed gratitude to Joseph. 
I don't know if you've seen that old 1959 version of, of Ben-Hur. Charlton Heston, he, he's adopted by Quintus Arius after being uh, a prisoner and on that slave ship. He's now adorned in fine clothes. He's given uh, that signet ring. And then he's paraded on horse-drawn chariot. Well, he's paraded on a chariot through the streets of Rome to go meet Caesar himself. And that, I think, is a little bit just a little bit of what it must have been like for Joseph. Only this was bigger, what we're reading of in Genesis 41. Joseph is paraded on chariot throughout all of Egypt, and masses bow. Joseph had reached the top. Can you imagine yourself in Joseph's shoes? I mean, what would that feel like? For me, it'd be, it'd be just shock and disbelief. How surreal this all is. I think I'd be pinching myself, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be thinking, how is this happening? How did I, yesterday I was here, now I'm, I'm here? Maybe it would feel awkward. Maybe you would be thinking, I wish my family, I wish my brothers could see me now. Yesterday I was battling filth and stench. Today I have attendants waiting on me hand and foot. Yesterday, it was all I could do to choke down those nasty little bits of flavorless nourishment. Today, I'm dining on the finest cuisine known to man. Yesterday, I was struggling to survive. Now I'm responsible for the survival of the known world. Yesterday, a multicolored coat was a symbol of the good life I had lost. And today, the everyday clothes on my back make the luxuries of yesterday look like rags. Like rags. Pharaoh said, verse 44, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Joseph made it to the top. He made it to the top, but all of the fame and fortune and power and responsibility and luxury that he now enjoyed, it was not without its dangers. You see, Pharaoh wasn't content to just simply let Joseph have all this power and all the trappings of Egyptian royalty. He expected him to fully embrace Egyptian culture as an adopted son of the king. So he changed his name. That old Hebrew name, that which just wasn't going to do anymore. Joseph would now be known as Zaphnath Paniah. In a way, that new name actually testified to Joseph's God. Some scholars believe that it means God speaks and lives, a testimony to what God did through him in interpreting Pharaoh's dream. But you know what? There's no question that this name was meant to do something different. It was meant to solidify Joseph's identity as an Egyptian. Not only was his name changed, he was given the daughter of an Egyptian priest to marry. Potiphar was a priest of On, we read, and that was a place known to the Greeks later on as the Sun City. As you might guess, this city, which lies about 10 miles north 
east of Cairo. It was dedicated to the worship of Ra, the sun god. Okay, now how awkward is this? Here we have Joseph, a descendant of Abraham, Abraham who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, where they worshipped the moon god. Here was Joseph, now a worshiper of the one true God who had been ripped out of the comfort of his home, sold into slavery, brought into a foreign land, a pagan land, and imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. And now he's hurled into the second most powerful position in all the world, but made to marry the daughter of a priest of the pagan sun god. I'm doing premarital counseling for a couple on Monday nights. And last week, we talked about how, how complicated and complex it could be to, to unite two people in marriage. Two people of different minds and different personalities and different backgrounds, different education, all of that kind of stuff, to unite them. But then to add on top of that, the families, right? And, and, and how incredibly complicated it is for this, this new relationship to work here. There's plenty of room for tension and conflict or for family members to make things challenging. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Marriage is difficult to begin with, but marriage between two people who don't agree on the most fundamental things in life, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. The marriage of Joseph and Sanath daughter of the priest of Ra. How complicated was that going to be? This isn't a marriage that I could have put my blessing on. This isn't a marriage that I could have even uh, performed. Just think of the tension that there's going to be at family gatherings. Think of the weirdness of being, to, being married to, to a spouse who's, who's walking around, going through uh, out her day, through the daily rituals of worship to the sun god. Think of the disagreements Think of the, the pressure that would be coming from your father-in-law, the priest. Think of the disapproving glares and the underbreath comments. How's Joseph supposed to remain faithful to God now that he's made it big? Making it to the top came with serious complications and even temptations. When he was destitute and in prison, it, did, it didn't matter. He didn't really have much of a choice. God was his one and only hope. And so he looked to him. He relied on him. He cried out to him for deliverance. But now, not only does he have his every waking moment met with being served hand and foot, but he finds himself just about every moment with the potential to just, just go with it, to give in, to assimilate, to adopt and enjoy this new life and all the, all the different aspects of it, this life on top. Did Joseph even need God anymore? Did he even need him? Joseph, Joseph needed God to lean on during the difficult times, right? The days of slavery, the days in prison. But now he's on top. Now he can stand on his own two feet. What does he need God for? And an article wrote on uh, str.org, that's Stand to Reason's website, Greg Kokel recalls that it was the German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach who was the first to suggest that God is nothing more than a psychological projection. He writes, 
Religion to him was a universal neurosis. God is merely a placebo, a crutch, a function of religious wishful thinking. He writes, Sigmund Freud, Frederick, Frederick Nietzsche, Karl Marx, the one who said religion is the opiate of the people, they all traded on this same thing. Now that he was on the top, now that Joseph was on the top, he could have very, very well thought the same way. He could have been like a lot of former Christian musicians who used God to make it to a certain level of prosperity, of recognition. But once they got there, they realized, ah, God is now actually kind of getting in the way. So I'm going to kind of push him to the side, or maybe I'll just keep my views on God quiet, or maybe I'll just forsake him altogether, because now I'm there, and I can make it. I, I'm getting somewhere, and you know what? God is, if I get rid of him, then I'm just going to soar even greater heights now. I, I, I appeal to a wider audience. It could have been like that. He could have thrown off the shackles of primitive beliefs to reach higher, greater heights. We face similar challenges, don't we? Think about it. Living in our modern world, it's comfort-filled, it's technology-enhanced, it's entertainment-driven, and we're continually bombarded with opportunities to compromise, aren't we? They're everywhere. Opportunities to assimilate, to adopt the very same ideas and indulgences of those people who don't believe what God's Word says. At school or at work, we're tempted to buy into ideologies of the day. We, we want to climb that ladder further, so we're tempted to rethink what God's Word says and get on the right side of history. Embrace the pop, popular beliefs of the day. Either that, or we're tempted to, to keep our trust in God a secret. We're so inundated, uh, or, or so intimidated by what other people think, and how they might re react to our reliance on God, that we hide our light under a bushel. Do you remember that song? At home, we're tempted to power up our screens, let our minds soak in whatever entertainment offerings are are up there regardless of the content we get you got to watch something right as we look around and see all sorts of ways that people are dealing with life's complicated challenges and the difficulties that come with life they're looking for new remedies and new ways of escape and new me methods of finding inner peace or whatever it may be we're tempted to just try it or buy right in. Joseph was on top. He had the world at his fingertips. He could have said, look, belief in God, that, that got me so far, but, but I'm moving on now. And now I've, I'm, I'm in the big leagues now. We don't see Joseph succumbing to any of that. What do we see? We see God's man acting on three fundamental beliefs. We see a workhorse who would spend the next seven years planning and preparing and organizing and directing monumental nationwide farming and food storage efforts. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt 
During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. I've, read, uh, I've heard a lot in recent years of the older generation and their concern for the, the diminishing work ethic they see among younger adults. These people don't know how to work. They just want to sit around and be served. There's none of that here. None of that here. Joseph, Joseph not only stepped up to the challenge, but he was in it for the long haul. Seven years he worked. Have you seen that Geico commercial with a guy brushing his teeth and DJ Khaled comes up to him and says, Yo, Devin, remember, brush in a circular motion. Tiny circles, Devin, do another one. Another one. Devin, don't give up. Joseph didn't have a guy like that. He didn't have a guy cheering him on, motivating. Joseph, you got to get up today. You can do this, Joseph. Keep going. What was it that was spurring Joseph on? What was behind this massive effort that he was making? Well, it could have been one thing. It could have been the weight of his responsibility. It could have been that Pharaoh was expecting him to deliver. And Joseph knew that if he didn't deliver, well, then you, well, you don't want to disappoint Pharaoh because uh, remember what happened to the baker? Joseph wanted to keep his head right where it belonged. Could have been that. Maybe. But I think there was more to it. In fact, I think there, there were three fundamental truths that kept Joseph focused and kept him faithful under the immense pressure that he felt on top. Three crucial things that allowed him to survive. Let's look at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In those seven years, the Nile, that river, it flowed. It spilled over into all the irrigation channels and made the land fertile, lush, barn-busting crops. But you know, it wasn't just the land that was, that was experiencing blessing. It was Joseph's family as well. He has two sons. The saint gave birth to two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, we got to make sure we don't miss this. This is important. Both of those names, both of them are not Egyptian names. They're Hebrew names. That's significant. Pharaoh had done all that he could to Egyptianize Joseph, didn't he? He changed his name. He, gave, he put on clothes. He gave him uh, an Egyptian wife. And yet Joseph's loyalties, we see right here, they remained, they remained the same loyalties that his great-grandfather had 
when God had called him out of darkness. The naming of his two sons proves it. Manasseh means he who causes to forget. When Joseph's firstborn son was born, all those excruciating days enslaved and in prison, they just began to melt away. God had pulled away the rain clouds, and the sun was starting to shine. Ephraim means fertile. Not only had God taken away the horrors, but God had rained down this abundance of blessing. So he named a secondborn, and Joseph exclaimed, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You see, even at the top, Joseph never lost sight of who was responsible for every good thing that he had. And he held tightly with both fists to the reality that there's only one true king. He trusted in God's greatness. He trusted in God's word. And he trusted in his presence. And therein lie the three crucial things that we need to hold on to when we walk through those valleys in life, but also as we stand on its peaks. God's people survive life at the top by believing his greatness. In the pit, Joseph declared to the baker and the, and the cupbearer that he wasn't going to be the one who was going to interpret the dreams. That was God. God was going to do it. It was Elohim. It was God and God alone who remained in complete control, even in the deepest, darkest moments of life. There's no limit to his reach, no obstacle so large that he couldn't move, no challenge too great that he couldn't overcome, no barrier that was too dense to prevent his all-seeing and all-knowing gaze. And so Joseph relied on God in the depths. But he also did the same thing as he stood on the precipice of the summit. Do you remember Standing there before Pharaoh, Pharaoh called him up and said, I, need, I had some bad dreams, I need someone to interpret them. And Joseph says, I'm not the guy. It's God who interprets those dreams. He believed in God's greatness in the depths of the pit and even in the palace. And he'd go on for the next 14 years to live in light of that every single day. That's how he survived life on top. You and I may remind ourselves of God's greatness when we endure those pits in life, but do we recognize it when everything is good? When everything is roses, do we recognize it? Do we recognize it when we feel like, like um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in that movie? He stands on the bow of the ship and he says, I'm the king of the world. Do we recognize it then when we feel on top? If we don't, we quickly lose sight of who actually is king, don't we? We lose sight of it. We find ourselves falling hard after the very things that Christ came to save us from. God's people survive life at the top by believing in his greatness. They also survive life at the top by believing in his word. In his word. Joseph believed God's word. He believed the covenant that God had made with Abraham. He believed the dreams that God had given him. He believed the interpretation that God gave him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. His actions over the next seven years, they would prove that. God's word moved him to action. They guided his steps. I believe they were the mantra that kept him going. He stood alone on the trustworthy 
eternal word of God. And he's not alone. One pastor wrote, that's how Moses would stand before Pharaoh. That's how Daniel would stand before the king of Babylon. That's how the apostle Paul towered before the courts of Rome. That's how Martin Luther stood before the world. They all believed God's word. As you and I wade through life battered and bruised by the sea of voices coming at us from every direction, do we have as our sure and steady anchor the unfailing word of God? It blows my mind how our tendency is to, to go to God's word and open it up and search the scriptures when the chips are down. But then when everything is roses and lollipops, all of a sudden, we let the dust start to collect on this thing because we have better things to do. And life is easy. We don't need it quite as much. And the greatest tragedy of all is that's so often when we need it the most. God's people survive life at the top by believing in his greatness, by trusting in his word, finally, by believing he's always present. He's always present. Joseph trusted in God's presence. We've read that several times. I think it was in chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph, it says, several times. He knew no matter how far he was from home, there was no place that he could go away from God. Even when he was called by an Egyptian name, even when he was wearing their clothes, even when he was married to an Egyptian wife and walked in the shadow of the monuments of the Egyptian gods, God was with him. And so when it came time to name his his half-Hebrew, half-Egyptian sons, there was no question in his mind whose presence their names should testify to. Is your life marked by belief in the reality of the ever-present nature of God? God's people survive by knowing that He's present with them. Joseph certainly did. That helped him through those first seven years of plenty and then on into the next seven years of famine. The rock-solid nature of those three beliefs, they allowed him to remain faithful as he worked hard for the glory of God and the good of others. Many years before, God had promised his great-grandfather Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Here it was. In a, in a very temporal sort of way, but Joseph, one of Abraham's descendants, was now blessing all the people of the earth. And we know later on that, that Christ, Abraham's premier descendant, the promised one, that he would bless us in a totally more eternal and powerful way. But here it is. Joseph is a blessing in allowing people to survive the next seven years. Look at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh 
said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So the famine spread over all the land. Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. And Joseph was a blessing. It's not just the, the climb that's dangerous. The summits, the summits can be just as deadly. And God's people survive at the top by believing in His greatness, by trusting His Word, and by believing He is always present. As you and I, even in this difficult season that we find ourselves in right now, and yet we continue to live privileged lives of of relative ease. Let's keep the one and only true king on the forefront of our minds that we might be used for his purposes in the furthering of his kingdom.